0: Before we start, um, somebody handed me a note, and I think this is probably something we should do, uh, and that's to bow our heads and have a quick prayer for all the uh, people had, that lost their homes and their lives even in that huge superstorm uh, over in the Philippines. I mean, we had a little inkling of that with Sandy not too long ago and some of the other storms we have had here, and uh, they say that this is probably one of the biggest storms the world has ever seen as far as strength of wind. So let's bow our heads. Our Father, we want to pray especially for those people who have been hit with this storm. We know many people have lost lives. I'm sure many more have lost their belongings and their houses and, and uh, relatives. We know that this is not in your plan, that you are a God of life and love. But we pray that you may put your hand over those who have suffered through this ordeal and bring them through, help them to recover, help them to help each other, because in helping each other, they will draw together. We ask a special blessing for uh, them as they go through these next couple weeks and months, because we know it takes a long time to recover from something like this. We ask for that special blessing for them today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. There's certain events in the Bible that hit us more than other events. And I think one of the um, most awesome events in the Bible uh, are when God gave the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai and the things that happened around that time. So I wanted to dig in a little bit today into that story and uh, make some applications to that. And uh, the main point has to do with the sermon title. And what was the sermon title? What does that mean? We'll find that out in just a few minutes. I want you to turn with me to Exodus 19, because this is really where uh, the focus is Exodus 24. That's the focus of the sermon today but it really starts in Exodus 19 when the uh, Israelites have come out of Egypt and they come to Mount Sinai. And in uh, verse 3 of chapter 19, God calls Moses up on the mountain. And what does he say to him? He makes it very short and quick, actually, because what he says is, you have seen how I have brought you out of Egypt. Now I'm going to make a deal with you. And in verse 5 and 6, this deal is, If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you will speak unto the children of Israel. Very, very short, not a very long sermon. Simply saying, if you will obey my voice, And follow me, I will be your God and protect you and lead you. And now that's called a what? That's called a covenant. We would say a different word today. We don't use that word very much. What would we say? A contract, an agreement, whatever. Yes, very, very short. And um, so Moses... um, is told this by God. And you'll notice in that verse, verse 5, what is it also? It's a conditional covenant. Because there's a if there, and there's a then there. So that means that it's only conditional upon both parties doing their part in that covenant. Now, as we know in the book of Daniel... After all the history of the Jews, God got to the place where he gave them one last final uh, time to fulfill their part of the covenant. I'm going to give you 490 years to make up your minds whether you want to stay in this covenant or whether you don't. And um, this is called the Old Covenant as many people think today, the covenant given to the Jews. And yet when we go through to the New Testament, the New Covenant basically has all the same parts to it. If you will obey me, I will be your God. And in fact, was the law part of the New Covenant, according to the New Testament? It said, I will put my law right in your heart. It's not based on any tables of stone, which was part of the uh, Old Covenant, but now I will put that law right inside your heart so it becomes part of your desire it becomes part of what you want to do in life. So the covenants are really the same as we study through the Bible. But it's interesting in verse 5 and 6, what does he call Israel? A peculiar treasure or people, a kingdom. Now, what, what's in a kingdom? Usually kings, right? <laughs> and he says a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's what he wanted Israel to be. As we already mentioned in Daniel, God gave the people at the end a time to fulfil that, and we know that they didn't. And I want you to turn to first Peter two nine with me and to kind of show you what happened to that peculiar people. First Peter chapter two, verse nine. And look at the words that Peter uses. He's talking to the church, the Christian church, after Christ had come and gone. But you are a chosen generation, a what? Royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. He uses all exactly the same words, doesn't he? That he gave to Israel when he was choosing Israel to be his people. So Moses went back down the mountain, and as we go through this story, if you uh, want to, and I did this in my Bible just for fun, every time Moses went up the mountain, I put a little arrow right in the next to the verse, and then every time he goes down, I have a little down arrow. And this chapter and the next couple chapters are full of little arrows. So even at 80 years old, Moses must have been a pretty good hiker because he went up and down that mountain numerous times. So in verse seven uh, or six, he goes down and tells the people. Uh, and he calls the elders together because they were the representatives of the people, and he tells them what God has said. And all the people answered together and said, what? What the Lord has just said, this covenant that, that he's going to tell us about and he's going to make with us, we're going to do this. We're going to follow everything he said. I find that interesting because God had basically told them nothing yet. They didn't even know what they were getting into. Sometimes you wonder if they knew what all the laws and ordinances and everything were going to be, whether they would have said all that the Lord said we will do. But anyway, all the elders said, yes, that's uh, something that we want to do. So Moses climbed back up the mountain and he told God um, in verse 9 that he told the Lord what the people had said. Yes, we will do this. And I find verse 9 particularly interesting because the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to cover myself in this dark cloud here to cover my glory, but I am going to speak to you and all the people who are out there on this plane are going to hear me speaking to you so that they will believe what you say forever." So God wasn't just speaking to Moses and telling him things. He was doing it in such a way so all the people would hear God speaking to Moses and then would follow Moses, understanding that God had talked to him and was leading him. Should be no question in their mind. And yet, turn over with me to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 5. And Christ, I think, is talking about this exact situation when he says in John five, forty-five to forty-seven Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuses you, even Moses, in whom you trust. For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writings, how can you believe in me? So what God did to have the people believe in Moses kind of went in one ear and out the other, didn't it? It didn't really stay. So up in the mountain, God says to Moses, okay, I want you people to prepare yourself for three days. And uh, at the end of this three-day period of time, I'm going to have a meeting with you and we will ratify this covenant. But in verse 13, he warns the people Moses, for none of the people to come near the mountain. He had put this border around the mountain, and since God's presence was there, if anybody came into this area by mistake or without being invited specifically by God, they would be dead. And so he warns Moses. But I really thought the last part of verse 13 was really kind of neat, because we will see hear that happen again. He says, When the trumpet sounds long they shall come up to the mount. Can you think of any other Bible text that talks about that same type of situation? Let's go to First Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm sure this verse is some, a verse that we've all read. First Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 16. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the, what? With the trumpet of God. So when Christ comes, there will be a long trumpet sound, and the people of God will ascend up to the mount. Except now the mount will be Mount Zion in heaven. So it's kind of neat that the same thing will happen again as happened there. So Moses went back down again, uh, and he told the people that they needed to sanctify themselves and be ready, and so on the third day, um, here's the mountain. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about what this looked like when God came down on the mountain. It says, there was thunder and lightning and thick cloud upon the mount, and the voice of the trumpet. So you think it was just a trumpet sound? The way this whole chapter reads, it makes it fairly clear that that trumpet sound is God's voice. It's not just a trumpet, it's his voice, but it has the clarion call of a trumpet. And um, there was a storm this summer, I don't know if you remember it, it was one evening into the late night. I woke up at like 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock in the morning, and the whole sky was just lightning, constant And it was raining cats and dogs and thundering. And I mean, it was a spectacular sight. This, the whole mountain, is just going back and forth with thunder and lightning and and big jags, you know, of lightning and so loud that these people can't hardly even think. And they stood at the bottom of the mountain, and we find out later in the chapter that they were afraid when God started talking to Moses, and they ran away, actually, it says. They went far away from the mountain. You know, it's like Moses set a border up so they wouldn't get too close. I don't think he had to worry about that because they were actually running away. It was such a supernatural sight. They had never seen anything like it before. In verse 19, when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake. And it said, God answered him. And he called Moses up to the top of the mountain. So, again, Moses hikes back up to the top of the mountain for no other reason than to God say to him, Remember, I told you not to come, have anybody come real close. You know, they're staying away, aren't they? And Moses said in verse 23, yes, we already established those boundaries and and nobody's going to come up. And and, uh, I think it's safe. And so the Lord says, okay, go back down and I want you and Aaron and some others to come up in a little while after we go through this covenant process. So Moses goes back down the mountain again and he told them, okay, reminding them not to get too close to the mountain and then through this trumpet sound, God starts speaking to them. And what does he say in chapter 20? If you keep going, what do we read? The Ten Commandments. So God speaks the basis for the covenant. And he goes through then in chapter 21 and chapter 22, and he gives them the the nation rules, the national rules that are going to be uh, set up for this nation, along with the Ten Commandments. And if you go on through and read those, there's quite a bit. There's a couple pages of those. But then comes the most important part, and that's the ratifying of this covenant. God has suggested a covenant. The people have said, yes, everything that God wants us to do, we're willing to do. But now they had to go through the actual ratification of this covenant. You might say they agreed, but they had to put it on paper so that they knew that this was the agreement. So if you switch to chapter 24, he said to Moses, come up to the mount and bring Aaron, and who else did he bring? Nadab and Abihu. Now, who were Nadab and Abihu? They were Aaron's sons, and what happened a little later in their history? wasn't a good story, was it? And yet God was willing to bring them up, knowing what they would do later on, bring them up to the mount to meet God. God gives us all chances over and over, doesn't he? So he said, bring Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders up on the mountain and we'll ratify the covenant. The 70, along with Aaron and his two boys, could go up a certain amount to the, uh, I mean, a certain distance up on the mountain. They were enclosed by the cloud, but they couldn't get real close to God. Only Moses, it says in verse 2, shall come up to the very, very top where God was. And yet, if you read in uh, verse 11 of chapter 24, the no, uh, upon the nobles of the children of Israel, the elders, the 70 elders, he laid not his hands, also they saw God. So these, this group of people saw something that was out of the ordinary. We know that only Moses actually saw the figure of God, and even that was only his backside. But these 70 saw something that they could definitively say, that's, that's God whether it was this huge light that surrounded them or whatever, um, I found it very interesting that they were in God's presence too, not just Moses. And so um, Moses told the people uh, what God wanted them to do, and uh, the people answered again, all that the Lord uh, said we will do. And so they had some sacrifices that they had to give. Remember in the Bible, anytime there was a covenant or an agreement between two parties, that was all sealed back then by a blood sacrifice. And that sacrifice, in essence, meant that we vow on our blood that we will agree to our part of this covenant, and if anything happens uh, to where uh, I break that, then my blood can be taken because I am part of that blood covenant that we've made. And so they had some sacrifices, and in verse 6 and 7, Moses takes some of that blood, and he sprinkles it where? On the sacrificial altar, which was God's place, and he sprinkles some of it on the people. Some of it was sprinkled on the people themselves. You might say that they were covered in his blood. Which is what the New Testament talks about a lot, where we are covered by Christ's blood. It helps us understand some New Testament texts, and I want to just read a few of them uh, really quickly. Let's turn to Matthew 26:28. Matthew 26:28. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And I'm sure that as Christ was saying that, he was thinking back to that verse in Exodus 24, where it was the lamb's blood sprinkled on the people that was the blood of the covenant. And then you can read in Hebrews 9, 19 to 28, or in 1 Corinthians 11, 25, the same thought. So they went up to the mountain, it says in verse nine, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70. And this is what I want to kind of bring out today that is an interesting thought that I had never thought about before. They went up in the King James, it says, "They saw the God of Israel and there was under his feet as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone, and it was and as it were, the body of heaven, in clearness. So, what does that mean in so many terms? As they went up to the top of the mountain, they saw God, and we don't know if He was standing or sitting. But I'll I'll uh, show you in a minute that I think He was sitting. Uh, and what was under Him looked like a sapphire. Now, how many of you know what sapphire looks like? What kind of a blue? It's dark blue. Just for fun, I went to Wikipedia, and uh, you can do this, and I wrote, you know, copied it off, and here's a picture of a huge blue sapphire stone. If you want to see it afterwards, you can come up and see it. One of the most beautiful stones, you can see right through it. It's a deep blue, and in fact, if it has a little impurity in it, that stone will actually be a different color. It's made out of the same material. It's called corundum. But if it has a little bit of an impurity of a certain type, it becomes a ruby. It's red and not blue. And if it has certain other impurities, it will be different colors. But this one, the regular sapphire, is blue, a real dark blue. And it says it's as the sky. You can see blue, and yet, is there anything between you and the sky? You know, it's like you can see right through to the blue, but you can just keep seeing. And that's the translucency. And in fact, if you look up the word there, um, paved, it really doesn't mean paved anyway. If you look it up in Strong's, it means translucent. And the word work there means something that's been made. So if you put that idea into it, it says, they saw the God of Israel and there was under his feet, as it were, a translucent something that was made of Sapphire. Now turn to Ezekiel with me. I'm just going to make a uh, a thought for you to think about and this is how I believe it. You don't have to but you can see as we go along that uh, there may be something to that. Remember Ezekiel's vision in chapter 1 and he sees all these wheels within wheels and he sees these holy creatures and and basically it's God's throne coming down from heaven to judge Israel. And what does it say in verse 26? Above the firmament, these angels were all underneath and it looked like there was some kind of a, a firmament. And then above the firmament over their heads was the likeness of a throne and the appearance of a, as the appearance of a sapphire. So I believe that here in, on the top of Mount Sinai, God was sitting on his throne. Jesus was sitting on his throne, and that throne was made out of sapphire. Now, the interesting thing about that is that there's no place in this ver- uh, a chapter that says anything else about stones except in verse 12. And, and that's mentioned in co- uh, relation to what? The Ten Commandments. It says, God called Moses back up to the mountain and says, I will give thee tables of stone and a law and commandments. Could it be that the Ten Commandments are not rocks like we see pictured, you know, in pictures all the time? You know, the ones I always see are gray, and they have this little black writing on there, or they have cracks all through it like it's some rock that somebody chiseled out of a a quarry in red granite or something like that. I believe that the Ten Commandments were made out of that same stone that they saw God sitting on, that beautiful blue sapphire. Now, I've made a supposition. Is there anything in the Bible that would maybe lead me to believe that that might be proper? Uh, Let's go to a few different uh, places in the Bible and uh, see if uh, if that's the case, that if The Ten Commandments are made out of this blue sapphire, and God wanted to remind the Israelites all the time about this. Would he use blue in his sanctuary service to help them remember all the time about his law? And let's read just a few verses. Let's go to Exodus 26, verse 1. Moreover, thou shalt make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twisted linen and uh, of blue and purple and scarlet so in the curtains in the sanctuary there were these three colors always woven together blue scarlet and purple now we'll talk about those in just a minute let's go to 2716 and for the gate of the court shall be a hanging of 20 cubits of blue and purple and scarlet and then go over to uh, say 36:35 and i'm just picking a few because there's a ton of these 36:35 says and he made a veil of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twined linen with cherubim's made he it of cunning work if you go to chapter 39 it talks about the ephod and the breastplate and how they were made and they were all backed with blue cloth. Uh, if you read about when they would um, leave, you remember when the uh, presence of the Lord would start moving and the, all of Israel was supposed to start moving with them, when they had to pack everything up, many of the things would be covered with a blue cloth as they moved. And so you start wondering a little about that, and uh, then also... In um, Numbers, Numbers 4, and we won't turn to that, but Numbers 4 and Numbers 15, what did he have the Israelites wear as a border around the bottom of their garments? It was a blue border, wasn't it? The three colors are interesting. The colors were what? Purple, red, and Blue. We all know that purple throughout history has been a color for what? For royalty. I don't know why, but royalty has always picked purple as its color. Um, What is red a color of? Or scarlet, as it's said in many of these things. Usually in the Bible, it's one of two things. It's either sin, remember, though your sins be as scarlet, or of blood, which really is from the same sanctuary picture. And who dealt with that? The priests. What did God say that we just read in Leviticus he wanted Israel to be? A nation of kings and priests. So he reminded them of that in all the different colors that were woven through the fabrics of the curtains of Everything he had in the sanctuary. And along with reminding them that he wanted them to be a nation of priests and kings, he included the blue for them to remember that it was only uh, proper then, if they were going to be kings and priests, that they would obey God's law as they were doing all that. Also, it's interesting, a picture of the scene on Mount Sinai. You have the blue sapphire, and then you have Jesus sitting on top of that, or standing on top of it, whatever you choose to think. And then in heaven, the Father is there, right? Think of the sanctuary in the most holy place. What's at the bottom? In the ark is the blue sapphire stones. Above that is the mercy seat, which is Christ, represents Christ. And above that is the Shekinah, representing the Father. So it's the same order. God was trying to tell them something when he was doing it in that way. So when we look up into the sky, and I think there's a reason why God made the sky blue and not Pink or brown or whatever other color he could have made it. Because every time we look up in the sky, he wants us to understand and to remember his law. It's the basis of everything in God's government is his perfect law, his perfect character. So as we look up and see that, we can remember why he included that in everything in the Israelite sanctuary is to get them to remember that the law is important. Now, one last contrast that I want to bring that's fairly interesting. What are the three colors that the priests had in the sanctuary service? Purple, scarlet, and blue. I want you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 17. And we've all heard about the woman riding the beast in Revelation 17. And she's described in verse 3 and 4, and especially in verse 4. This is talking about Babylon, talking about the false church, talking about those who are not following God at the end of the world. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls having a golden cup in her hand. What's missing? What does that tell you? Isn't that interesting? Same picture of same colors as God's priesthood but the blue is missing and I think that's exactly the reason why if you go back a few chapters to um, Revelation 12, verse 17, it gives the characteristics, remember, of God's last day church, his people. It says they keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Revelation 14 says the same thing. So God presents, here in Revelation, a contrast between the woman who claims to be a king, claims to be priests, and yet who's Sayings and laws are not based on God's commandments and among his people who are following him who do base their character upon God and his perfect character and his commandments and who are willing to follow because he has asked us to. So next time we look up in the sky, let's remember that God is always watching over us. He's always wanting us to obey exactly how we ask Israel to obey on on Mount Sinai. And that obedience should come not because we are afraid of him as they were when they backed off from the mount, but because we understand how much he really loves us. Our Father, sometimes we forget that part, that you do love us and that you are with us each and every day. We know that you want to give us Only what is best. And you will if we only give ourselves to you. We're thankful for everything that you've done to us and for us. And we pray that you may continue. That during the coming week and weeks and months that we will draw closer to you as we read and pray and search into you and your love and your law. We want to be ready for that soon coming day when we will be able to go and see you on that throne of Sapphire. We ask that not only us but that we will be able to speak to others and be part of that great family who will be together forever. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.